0: hello everyone and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst i'm ben and i'm Sarah. thank you so much for listening to us today how are you doing sarah surviving excellent that's all we can ask of anybody.
1: How are you doing?
0: I'm doing pretty good, which is new.
1: Yeah, that's an improvement.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had a pretty good day yesterday. We went outside uh, to buy groceries and pick things up from stores that are closed but are offering curbside like pickup for things. Um, and
1: like a local comic book store.
0: Right, which we're trying to do our best to support. And I think that just like having a reason to put myself together and, you know,
1: get out of pajamas, shower.
0: Right, exactly. Put on real clothes, like go outside it was all very good for me yesterday. Um, and I'm still feeling pretty good today, so it's nice.
1: Well, I'm glad you're doing better. Mm hmm. Um, as I'm working from home, I find my productivity is much better if I shower and put on pants.
0: Sure, Even yeah. though
1: all of our video calls do not show the lower half of my body.
0: Right, you could get away with Skype protocol.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's going well. That's good. What are we watching today?
0: Today, Sarah, we are sort of cycling back in time a little bit to pick up on a movie that we missed originally. Okay. Uh, so we are back in 1943, and we are watching Le Lou de Malvenu, uh, directed by Guillaume Redot.
1: Sounds like a French movie.
0: Yeah! Um, this movie was suggested to us by an anonymous listener last May... Uh, But at the time, uh, I couldn't find any versions out there with English subtitles. Uh, And what versions I could find didn't even have the option to auto-subtitle the French and then Google translate it to English, as we have done with questionable results in the past. Yes. (laughs) But uh, recently, I have found an English subtitled version for us to watch, so I figured we would... Loop back and watch this uh, before we turn the page on the 1940s and head into the 1950s.
1: I mean, that's a good plan. So this is entering in uh, 1943, so that's like, we're in Luton Town.
0: Right yeah, now. I Walked with a Zombie, I think is uh, what comes out right before this. Um, and the other French film of the 1940s that we have on the list, uh, La Maine du Diable, uh is actually very close to this uh coming out about a month earlier. Okay. Now, as you can probably tell from the title, uh this is a werewolf movie, uh so to speak. And well, it
1: says The Wolf of Melvaneir. Yes. like the family of Melvaneir. Yes.
0: Um so it could be a werewolf or it could just be a wolf. Um yeah, we'll see. But uh, the the thing I find funny is that, like, I feel like every time we've done a werewolf movie in the past, like, we've always at least briefly touched on the French legend of the Lougarou, you know, more in some cases and less than others. And this is actually our first actual French werewolf movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's now finally relevant. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why don't we talk about the Lougarou a little bit?
1: For Sure. So for nineteen forty three. Mm-hmm. The werewolf movies we've had up to this point are The Wolfman from nineteen forty two, Werewolf of London from nineteen thirty five, and Wolf Blood from nineteen twenty five. That's right. As we kind of explain in the Wolfman episode, uh, episode eighty eight, um, that film really solidifies what we consider the legend or tropes of werewolfery.
0: Yeah, I mean, Full Moon, Silver Bullets, Wolf's uh, Bites, Pentagrams, all that stuff yeah. is Wolfman stuff.
1: Yeah. I'm kind of surprised we haven't come to France before. We kind of have with Catman of Paris in 1946, but that technically hasn't happened yet.
0: You mean come to France with a werewolf movie? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, because it's a recurrent location with... Werewolf literature as well as lore, Mm -hmm. um, mainly because continental Europe has always been (laughs) plagued with wolves.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of wolf folklore is going to develop when, as a medieval European, uh, the apex predator above you is wolf.
1: Yes. Not to mention the havoc that they wreak on your sheep, you know. Right. It's not just... Oh, they're going to eat you as a human? Like, they are going to eat, like, your means of living. Yeah. Um, the other reason why it's surprising that we haven't had a werewolf film from France before is because a lot of, um, the older werewolf legends, including the Lugaroo, specifically are around Catholic practices. And France is, whew, Catholic. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the case of um, the Lugaru, uh, if you didn't go to Easter Sunday services seven years in a row, you're going to be cursed to be a, a Lugaru, a werewolf.
0: You know that's weirdly specific in exactly the kind of way that like old folklore is nonsense.
1: Well, because they understand if you know the heart, um, the harvest—it's spring. Um, They understand if you're a farmer and suddenly you have to, you know, plant your food on an Easter Sunday, so, oh, you you missed services one year, maybe the second year. Better watch out, that seventh year, you're going to be cursed. And you're going to be cursed for 101 days. Okay. After that, um, the curse is lifted. You can also come out of the curse if someone recognizes you in wolf form. And that's the other thing. You turn into a wolf, not a wolf-man hybrid.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the wolf-man hybrid thing is really much more of a, like, Hollywood thing, right? Like, your traditional folkloric werewolves are like, you turn into a wolf, period.
1: Yes. Now just to talk about wolves a little bit, um like I mentioned before, continental Europe had a huge population of wolves in the wild. um, Particularly, uh, like, far more dangerous wolves than the wolves here in North America.
0: Sure, I mean... All of
1: them are dangerous. Yeah, let's not
0: downplay the danger of wolves.
1: (laughs) But the continental Europe wolves, for example, the Eurasian wolf is the largest of the gray wolves in Europe. um, And it is, like bulky in its mass, yet, like, more agile than the North American wolf. Hm. Again, as we've mentioned, they were kind of the apex predator, so from the Middle Ages onward, it was encouraged to kill wolves and kind of hunt them down.
0: Yeah, that's why we're talking about continental Europe. Yeah. Well... Because they killed them all in England. Yes. There weren't any in, in Britain because they, they were hunted down to extinction. Yes.
1: Um... If a wolf were to attack someone, though, it would be in defense of territory or food. Wolves, um, unless you were, like, wandering alone, mm-hmm. it wasn't common for a wolf to, like, break in in the middle of the night to get Sure,
0: in, yeah, they didn't, you know? like, raid your village like they were marauding orcs or something. Yeah.
1: Most documented attacks were actually from rabid wolves.
0: hmm
1: Um, if you look at Symptoms of werewolfery, mm-hmm. they are very similar to what happens when a human is bitten by a rabid wolf mm-hmm. or is suffering from rabies. Yeah. Um, and rabid wolves themselves, um, attack in a way that you would find similar to what we think of werewolves with like just randomly biting and tearing at you and then running off, mm-hmm. not actually biting and, and wanting you as a food source.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: As far as the stories about werewolves, the oldest telling of the legend comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses with uh, King Lycaon. And in that story, he just gets completely turned into a wolf. He doesn't go back and forth. Yeah. And then it's next mentioned in Marie de France's 12th century short story, Be mhm. where a man changes back and forth from a wolf for three days each week.
0: Yeah, it has something to do with him changing clothes, right?
1: Uh, he can only change back if he gets his clothes. Right. Now, if you were to look up on like Wikipedia or sites online that list uh, werewolf literature, you would find tons of examples where it's not actually really a werewolf. It's maybe like more about wolves mm. um, or like controlling wolves, something right. like that. Right, sure. Um, but the next case of... A werewolf, as we would kind of recognize, comes in 1933's The Werewolf of Paris, so again, France, mm-hmm. um, and this was written by Guy Endor, and it's more historical fiction than horror. Um, what's interesting is the main character um, can transform back and forth, and he can avoid transformations by drinking blood. So kind of a mixed right. Dracula in there.
0: Yeah, I mean... In traditional folklore throughout Europe, there's often been sort of cross-pollination between vampire stuff and werewolf stuff.
1: Yeah, like there was an idea that vampires could turn into werewolves.
0: Right, or like in Romania, there's like types of undead that are werewolves and like also vampires, like there's things that are both or similar. And the firm delineation between the two is very much coming from, like, your Hollywoods where you need, like, these specific rules and definitions. For
1: copyright reasons. And,
0: like, yeah, and for, like, franchising things out properly, right? Yeah. Like, you need to make sure that people know that, like, Batman's the one who has no superpowers and Superman's the one who... Who has
1: all the superpowers. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that there's, like,
0: these key differences. They aren't the same guy.
1: Yeah. Now, because La Lue de Melvenire mm-hmm. comes out in 1943, um, I will also just point out that um, we have the 1925 Wolf Blood, um, A Tale of the Forest,
0: yes. which
1: is a French-Canadian case of the Lou Garou,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that wasn't so much a werewolf, but the actual definition of lycanthropy, as in, you fear you are turning into a, a wolf.
0: Yeah, it was sort of about like paranoia and... Weird, racist, blood, cleanliness stuff.
1: Yeah. And then we have the 1933 Werewolf of London, which had more of a Jekyll and Hyde structure and transformation. Um, You could use this plant called the Merifaza plant Mm -hmm. from Tibet to stop yourself from turning.
0: Yeah, it was all about, like, serums and antidotes and shit.
1: Yeah. Um, But the idea of a full moon comes in with this film, and then, of course, the 1942 Wolfman, which, as I said, solidified these werewolf legends um, with the the moon, the wolf's bane, needing silver to kill someone. Um, and because that film was hugely successful, we have a ton of ripoffs um, from Poverty Row movies trying to cash in, to like other studios who aren't Poverty Row, yeah, um, trying to cash in as well. So they propagate that version of the legend so i'm going to be really curious to see what exactly like this film is 43 so only the following year Mm -hmm. so how much of that solidified werewolf lore will we get Mm -hmm. the other thing to keep in mind is that this is an occupied france so i don't know if they would be getting american movies
0: yeah it's it's interesting in a few levels right because like The Wolfman, when it came out, like, the situation in Nazi-occupied France was always changing very rapidly. Yeah. And so, like, the situation when Wolfman came out versus the situation when this came out is actually very different, for one thing. Mm -hmm. But also, um, the knockoffs of Wolfman came out really fast. Like, you know, it's always easy to forget how fast Hollywood could pump out movies back then. The other thing that's easy to forget is that because Universal had invented so much of werewolf lore in The Wolf Man, a lot of those early knockoffs, like, went out of their way to not use Universal's mm-hmm. premises uh, out of, like, fear of being sued.
1: Um, the other film that I didn't mention, because I forgot, is 1943's The Return of the Vampire.
0: Oh, which, yeah. Which, you know,
1: has a vampire, but... His minion is a werewolf who is cursed to werewolfery because of the vampire. Yes. Um, And he's cured when the vampire is defeated. And yeah. And then stricken again when the vampire comes back because the name is Return of the Vampire. But that film is, again, in the middle of the war, so I don't know if French people would have been able to see that movie.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: But it's another case of, we want to do werewolves, but we can't do wolfman to werewolves.
0: Yeah, instead it's like Renfield is a werewolf, basically. Yeah. So, speaking of the occupation, um, we talked a lot about sort of the situation around that in our episode on Le Maine du Diablo, which was episode 103, I think?
1: Yeah, that's episode
0: 103. Cool. Uh It's probably good to give a bit of a recap then, uh, because it's been a while, unless you're listening to these episodes in numerical order, in which case it's been, like, three episodes.
1: Yeah, it's still good to refresh. So in September 1939, Germany invades Poland, and World War II begins. Mm -hmm. France and the UK both declared war pretty much immediately. By May 1940... um, the Axis forces, specifically Germany and Italy, pushed into Belgium and the uh, French southeastern border. France fell by July, so very quickly, um, and because things happened so quickly, uh, French leaders were trying to ensure France's survival by negotiating an armistice with Germany. Mm -hmm. The results of this armistice is that France would be divided into an occupied zone, which is kind of like the northern half of the country plus all of the western coast, and the Free Zone, which would be the southern half, and the coast along the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the occupied zone included Paris, so the French government relocated to Vichy in the Free Zone, hence why it's known as Vichy France. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a bad deal. France had to pay the cost for the German army to occupy the land and manage French citizens in the occupied zone. And they were not allowed any kind of international trade. Um, they had no real power. They basically just handled the paper-pushing aspect of government. Yeah. Um, and they had to comply with German orders. Um, that includes um, all the way down to citizens having to follow German military orders Um, all the way up to following decrees from uh, Hitler himself. Mm -hmm. Now, that kind of changed in November 1942. In response to the Allied forces pushing in uh, to North Africa, um, so across the Mediterranean Sea, Germany fully occupied France. There was no more free zone. Um, Kind of the end of Vichy France, because now Vichy was also occupied the government was still there but it was like even further limited in any kind of power
0: yeah just like a a puppet sort of rubber stamp government
1: yeah and so this was a fully occupied france uh with italy occupying kind of the southeast area near alps um as far inland as leon and toulon and this continued until september 1943 when the occupied zones changed again. But that's where we are at when this film comes out in May, 1943.
0: That's right. Yep. Cool. Thanks, Sarah.
1: You're welcome, Ben. I, uh... (laughs) Obviously, it's a bad situation outside, Ben. Mm Mm-hmm. But it could be worse.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're not occupied by Nazis.
1: Yes. Um because the thing is in France like there were huge shortages of things like fuel, food, like 80% of the food that was produced in France was sent to German troops. Right. Uh so the citizens had nothing. There was there was a lot of things going on then and it 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 makes you like it really makes you feel things, Ben. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure.
1: I'll leave it at that. Tell us about who made this movie, though. Hmm.
0: So, as we mentioned in our episode on Le Maine du Diable, the French film industry in 1943 was entirely controlled by the Nazi government, uh, with the German bankrolled Continental Films being the only authorized film production company. However, the production of this and Le Monde du Diablo within such a close time frame sort of suggests that despite Joseph Goebbels' aversion to horror films, the genre's like resurgence in the United States required some attempt at a response. You know, there had been 10 horror films released in 1942, uh, and then 14 in 1943 and 1944,
1: that's in the States?
0: That's, like, overall. Okay. Um, And that's sort of, you know, 43, 44, are sort of the height of the genre's popularity before it starts, like, falling off again. And so I think these movies came maybe out of a little bit of a feeling of, like, oh, well, we can do that. We can do that better. You know? Mm-hmm. We don't have to import these popular American horror films. We can just make our own. Specifically... The Loup de Mataneu was basically designed as an attempt to replicate the style of universal films in France. Uh, and that would be like the broader aesthetic of universal films at the time. So yes, the classic horror movies that we've seen, but also the kind of like fog drenched mystery Sherlock Holmes movies universal was doing. Um, so I've seen this movie kind of described as being like, you know, Wolfman, but also like Hound of the Baskervilles and all of that kind of influence put together. Okay. The movie was shot in the South of France in the department of Cantal. And if it has a major advantage over Universal movies, it may be that it gets to use a real castle, the 15th century Chateau d'Angenie.
1: I mean, Sure. It makes total sense.
0: Yeah, if you've got castles, use them.
1: Yeah, Poverty Row in America is doing that with westerns in the desert.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, for sure. The movie's director was 32-year-old Guillaume Redot, and it was his first feature film as a director. Oh. Um, He had a background as, like, a second unit director and assistant director before this. The screenplay was by Francis Vincent Brechenyac. Uh,
1: I want to say that five times fast.
0: No. <laughs> as well as Jean Feline and Vincent Breschniak would go on to collaborate with Radeau on three more films before passing away in 1947. This was also his first uh, movie as a screenwriter, while uh, Radeau would make eight films overall before retiring in the 1950s and then passing away in 1977.
1: So kind of a short-lived career, at least in film.
0: Yeah, um, most of it being between like 1942 and like 1952. The film's stars are Madeleine Solon and Pierre Renoir. Solon was born in 1912 and she originally worked as a milliner before marrying a cameraman in 1936 and then becoming a painter's model. The painter encouraged her to attend acting classes, so she did, and she got her first movie role that same year. Her big star turn came in 1939 in the film Le Monde Tremblera, and her most acclaimed role would be as the lead female part in L'Eternal Retour later in 1943. She would largely retire from acting after the 1940s, appearing in four more films before 1969 and passing away in 1995. Wow. Pierre Renoir was the older brother of acclaimed filmmaker Jean Renoir and the son of the impressionist painter Auguste Renoir. He was born in 1885 and began acting on stage in 1907. In World War I, he lost the use of his right forearm. Uh, So just, in a, in, you know, wartime injury. He transitioned to film acting with the advent of sound at the request of his brother. His best-remembered role is probably Jericho in the 1945 French epic Les Enfants du Paradis. He passed away in 1952. The film's composer, Maurice Thierry is also perhaps best known for having composed the score to Les Enfants du Paradis.
1: Okay. So it sounds like we have a young actress with an older actor.
0: Yeah, um she was born in 1912 and he was born in 1885.
1: Yeah. That's that's like 30 years difference then.
0: Yeah, I don't know if they're romantically like linked in the movie or not. I guess we'll find out.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, the reason I bring it up is because we saw that kind of age difference in Werewolf of London.
0: For sure. So, Le Loup de Malvenu was released on May 12th, 1943. Judging by the fact that the team that made it went on to make other movies together after this, it must have been somewhat successful. But also judging by the fact that none of those movies were horror movies, it can't have been that successful. (laughs) Fair. Uh, From what I understand, the movie had a VHS release in France at some point. And it also has a subtitled DVD release from a bargain bin American DVD company called Sinister Cinema.
1: Well, let's take a watch. Let's see what is in store for us. Mm-hmm. Folks, hopefully you can find a copy. <laughs> Go back in time. <laughs> find a copy. Watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Les Loups de Melvenire from... 1943, directed by Guillaume Redot.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching the Loup de Melvenire from 1943, directed by Guillaume Rudeau. Ben, what did you think of this one?
0: I enjoyed it. It had a lot of really interesting um, qualities to it. And I think it's a in general, like, just a fun watch. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, I was surprised at how much the atmosphere was aided by being in a real castle.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big takeaway that I had for sure. Yeah. Well, the thing that's sort of for me interesting was seeing these like universal horror movie tropes that are in themselves kind of like very European derived. Mm -hmm. Like it's always like some, out-of-the-way village in Europe somewhere, and then, like, the crumbling castle on the outskirts and, like, all these other things. Even if it's set in the United States, it's still, like, an isolated village with a crumbling castle on the outskirts somehow. And so seeing these American tropes, that are clearly being emulated by this European film, but because those tropes are, like, based on like appropriating european imagery it's like this weird full circle kind of thing yeah. you know it's like it's like if you were watching like the japanese dub of mighty morphin power rangers you know <laughs> sure and so the way that the story is put together is like in some ways it's like a checklist of tropes it ha- it feels unique and new and different just because we're in france
1: yeah it's funny how it's like feeling like a refreshment on an old formula just because it's someone else
0: doing it right and and it's you know, and as you said, being on location and in a real castle and all these other things, but uh let's talk about the story of Lelou de Melveneur
1: for sure, um, it's convoluted, yeah,
0: that's true.
1: But mainly just because we don't get to see what goes on.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those movies where the entire plot gets explained to you in the last five minutes kind of movie. And even then you're left with some questions. Yeah. Uh, very intentionally, I would think. Um I think it's also a little convoluted because it is like a puzzle put together from like trope pieces.
1: Yeah, it's also a bit of a mystery. It's an old dark house kind of feel. Yeah, it's like yeah.
0: got um, some Jane Eyre. It's a mad scientist movie. Uh, it's a werewolf movie still at the end. Like, yeah, it's a few different things.
1: Yeah. So I've tried to make it as clear as possible.
0: For sure. It's as
1: clear as mud. Right. So we open with hearing about the family legend of the Mel Mm-hmm. Apparently... The very first Melveneer was a guy who raised three wolf cubs as hunting dogs. Um, but for reasons I won't get into, he was cursed by God, because he frightened the villagers so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this curse, this man um, would turn into a wolf at night, but be human by day.
0: Original Hulk rules. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, he doesn't turn into the Hulk due to anger for like a few years. Originally it's... Day and night.
1: Ah. This legend is claimed as truth because one day a villager killed a wolf with an axe, and this, the very first Melvenire, uh he was found in his bed with an axe wound. Also in this myth is the idea of his human form is one place, while his wolf form runs the runs wild
0: yeah so he's
1: kind of in two places at once
0: yeah it's it's he doesn't like it's almost like he doesn't transform from human to wolf it's like he goes to bed a human and then like his spirit leaves there and inhabits a wolf during the night and then like comes back or whatever
1: yeah but it's kind of like wolf matrix because if you die as a wolf yeah you you die you, in real life yeah
0: exactly yeah they're they're <laughs> they're linked
1: yeah Flash forward to 1925, which is when the rest of this movie is set.
0: I mean, it's amorphous early 20th century, but definitely before the occupation. But we definitely know
1: it, after the First World War.
0: Yes. We know it's 1925 only because of, like, a date on a tombstone. But, like, people's fashions aren't... Like, there's no effort to be like, oh, it's the 20s, like, in terms of period. Like, everyone's fashions are very up-to-date 1940s. It's just... Definitely before the occupation.
1: Yes. And we meet the last Melvaneer descendant named Reginald, who is a scientist in cell rejuvenation. And he hopes to work to help restore his wife Estelle to her full health. She has a bad heart, and she's been in ill health since giving birth to their daughter, Genevieve. Now, I know what you might be thinking. How can he be the last Melveneer, if he has a daughter.
0: Mmm, but primogenitor, you see. What? Primogenitor.
1: What does that mean?
0: Uh, like, male inheritance in, like, noble families. Ah, cool. That was going to be my point, but there's
1: apparently a word for that. Yeah. Good job, Ben. (laughs) Um, yes.
0: Yeah, he doesn't have a male heir, so, like, technically, like...
1: He's the last of his line, And also, getting a male heir is part of his motivation for restoring Estelle to health.
0: Yeah, because she's she's too weak to, like, go through another pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We also meet, on this dark and stormy night, um, Reginald's sister, uh, Megda. So, Estelle's sister-in-law. The servant, Edward. The deaf and mute servant, Mariana. Um, We meet friendly friend, Dr. Girard. And we don't meet him, but we hear of the gamekeeper, Morin, who helps Reginald with the vivisection of animals during his experiments. There's some strange things going on this night. Um, the doctor, Dr. Girard, uh, leaves with his friend that he, he came with, um, and Meg starts acting weird after going to see... Reginald one last time, but she kind of, you know, shoo's them away and whatever. Turns out, the next day, Reginald and Morin have both disappeared. Meanwhile, the governess for Geneviève arrives. Her name is Monique Valerie, and she's kind of our protagonist. Yeah. Um, she arrives and meets the painter, Philippe, who is also new to town. And this is important because the town is like, I'm not taking you all the way to... The Melveneer Chateau. I will only go so far. Yeah,
0: I won't take you past the Borgo Pass uh, on Walpurgis Night to yeah. get to Dracula's Castle. Like
1: <laughs> Because that legend of the werewolf type of deal is so strong still. To such an extent that the Melveneer family is not allowed to be buried in the village graveyard.
0: Yeah, so they're all in the crypts, at, like on the family estate.
1: Yeah. Monique is settling in, and there's a dark and stormy night. She um, is talking with Estelle and tucks her in with Estelle's scarf. And uh, Monique herself is about to fall asleep when Geneviève wakes up scared because she hears wolf howls and organ music on the wind. The next day, Estelle is found dead in her bed. But Monique finds Estelle's scarf outside. Megda says, oh, yeah, I borrowed the scarf. I must have dropped it outside. But that's a lie because Estelle was tucked in with it. So, hmm, why would she lie? Monique also notices Mariana taking food to the locked lab slash dungeon slash basement.
0: Yeah, if if this hasn't been made clear yet, the Malviners live in the castle, right?
1: Yeah, it's a big castle.
0: Yeah, so, like, it's the laboratory, but, like... They didn't, you know, do reno's and add a laboratory. The laboratory's just in, in the basement. The basement, which it's his man cave, right? Which the basement in a castle
1: is a dungeon.
0: Yes, correct. So both are true.
1: <laughs> um, and when finds this strange, because Reginald and Morin are supposed to be missing, there shouldn't be anyone in the basement. Mm-hmm. So she and the little girl Genevieve sneak down. And they discover Morin's clothes just kind of tucked to the side. Um, and in the midst of walking through these spooky shadows, um, we as the audience see a creeping man's shadow going throughout the dungeon. Now this creeping man goes up the staircase uh, to the, the entrance to the basement and closes the door. So Monique and Geneviève are locked in and Megda lets them out. Now, Monique has been relaying all of this to Philippe, and they've they've been getting pretty close. They go on, like, romantic walks every now and then.
0: Yeah, he's always like, hey, you should figure out what's happening at the house. And she's like, why do you care? And he's like, me? I don't care. I just like hanging out with you.
1: (laughs) In order to avoid being seen by Magda, um, during one of these walks, uh, they hide in the Gamekeeper's house. And that is where they discover a body. Magda follows, and she identifies the body as Reginald, her brother, and says that he must have died by suicide. During the funeral, Monique notices that Reginald is not being put into a plot next to Estelle, which is a little strange, because they're supposed to be married, you know? Mm -hmm. But we'll just put a pin in that. The next night, Monique awakes again to a scared Genevieve, and she hears organ music echoing through the castle. So she goes down by herself to investigate the lab and finds Reginald alive, but
0: mad. (laughs) And like, not upset. He's, he's, he's crazy. Yes.
1: He claims to have discovered cell rejuvenation and given the serum to Morin, but to really fully test it, he needs normal blood. And hey, you're just in time to be my next experiment.
0: Yeah, I mean, so the idea here is supposed to be that, like, he gives you this injection and it should, like, rejuvenate your cells. And I think he even claims, like, from the point of death, right?
1: Almost like bringing you back from the dead, or at least near death.
0: Right. And the issue is that, like, you know, he's a scientist, so he needs, like, I guess, like, a, um, like a, what do you call that? Test subjects? Well, like, like... You know, a baseline, because the problem is is that like, <laughs> oh, Estelle was too weak and Morin was too strong. So that's why he needs normal blood. Yes. You need that baseline.
1: Yeah. But he's clearly insane um, because he keeps seeing people. He first thinks Monique is Estelle. Um, he's, he's kind of rambling. He's not right in the head. Yeah. So Monique, as she gets threatened, she starts calling for Philippe who we saw snooping about the house. And he comes in, and he doesn't, like, come to the rescue with, like, with fisticuffs. He comes in and goes, Reginald, what are you talking about? Morin's dead and buried.
0: Yeah, he does come in down the dumbwaiter, which is pretty cool. Yes. Um, but, yeah, Reginald's under the impression that Morin is alive. Because his gave body him... was moved. and he, Well, because he gave him the serum.
1: Yeah, but then when he went back to check on the body, it was no longer there. Right. Reginald, kind of dumbfounded, walks towards his uh, adjacent room with the organ, and they just, like, lock him in there. Yeah, he's, He's like... He's defeated
0: very easily. He's doing, like, the mad scientist, like, rant about, like... His, you know, grand dreams and so on. And, like, I think he walks into the room and just is expecting them to follow him and to keep listening to his mad plan. <laughs> and they just close the door behind him and lock him in.
1: Yeah. Now, the camera follows Reginald and he keeps saying, Morin is buried. Atonement. And he starts burning his notes and setting his laboratory on fire and continues to play the organ like he's the band on the Titanic uh, to atone for his sins of killing Morin.
0: Yeah, because he was under the impression that, you know, Morin got up and walked away. So if Morin's dead, that means the serum doesn't work, which means all of this was for nothing.
1: Yeah. Monique, Philippe, and Dr. Girard, who has just suddenly appeared... Now confront Magda.
0: Yeah, while the the dungeon's burning down, they have a uh, parlor room scene with Magda.
1: Yes. Turns out Philippe is actually a police officer in disguise. Mm -hmm. And Magda explains with Philippe, like, saying, How do you explain this? And she's like, Here's the answer. Yeah. You know, whatever. Um, Magda explains that. That one dark and stormy night that the doctor remembers, she found Reginald mad and Morin dead. So, with Marianna's help, she locked Reginald up into the basement and moved Morin's body back to his house. When Reginald played the music another stormy night, it drew Estelle downstairs, who died at the shock of seeing her husband mad. Again, Megda and Marianna moved her body upstairs and covered it up.
0: We've got a madman in the basement instead of a madwoman in the attic.
1: Yeah, perfect. When Magda was around when Morin's body was found, she tried to say that it was Reginald, but apparently off-screen, Philippe and the doctor tested, uh, tried Reginald's rings that they had on Morin's fingers, and because they didn't fit, they were like, ah, this isn't Reginald, but we'll continue with the funeral to lay a trap. hmm And finally, we get to the why. (laughs) Why any of this? And Magda says that she wanted to preserve the family legacy, and she says that no Malveneer is to be locked up in, like, jail or an asylum. Yeah. Apparently the basement's fine.
0: Yeah, because the important part is keeping the secret. Yes. Because Magda's, like, whole deal is, like, the family and the family name and the family legacy, like... You know, Reginald is like, oh, I'm a scientist. I'm doing mad scientist things. The person who's really, like, assuming that role of, like, I'm the nobleman and, like, the lord of this land and everything is really Magda. Like, she's the one going around with, like, a a riding crop, like, (laughs) tucked (laughs) under her arm everywhere. and...
1: And saying, get off my lawn, you villagers. Yeah, exactly. But then, howls. We hear wolf howls. And Magda says Reginald must have escaped, which implies that either she believes in that wolf legend, or Reginald did get loose and howls as a man. Right.
0: Or that the wolf legend is true.
1: So the whole village, and Magda and Philippe following, are chasing after this wolf. We get a little bit of a mob scene. Um, The wolf is shot and killed in the Malvernier graveyard. And just then they look over and the castle explodes on fire.
0: (laughs) That's what happens when you leave a fire in the basement unattended, Sarah. (laughs)
1: Especially in a lab, all those chemicals. Exactly. Um, Monique, with Genevieve, comes running up and she says, Reginald must have started a fire and he was burned up inside. Mm -hmm. And then the last shot is on Megda, saying that the last of the Malvineer line died the same as the first
0: implying
1: that, that the wolf who died was Reginald.
0: Yeah, in fact, I mean, so the copy we were watching, I mean, it was watchable, Yeah. but it was a little fuzzy. And I sort of thought that, like, when the mob was chasing the howls, that they were chasing, like, Reginald. Like, I thought I saw them chasing after a guy. And, like, when Reginald, like, crested the hilltop, they shot the gun and then we went to, like, the close-up on the body, and it was the wolf. And that it was, like, a reveal. Like, oh, shit, here's a wolf instead of the guy we shot. Oh. Um, I
1: didn't get that at all. It was a little chaotic. Yeah. I think they meant it to be chaotic.
0: Though. Yeah, because just judging by the um, dialogue of the angry mob villagers, it seemed like they were chasing a Malveneur, like they were chasing Reginald, um, who at that point in the movie we've been led to believe has escaped. Yeah, so I sort of viewed that as, like, confirmation that Reginald was a wolf. But, again, the print was a little bit fuzzy, so, like, maybe it was meant to be more ambiguous.
1: I definitely took it as ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say, when they find Morin's clothes, Mm -hmm. I was really intrigued, because I was like, oh, are they going to do the werewolf thing where... They can only turn back into men if they have their clothes.
0: Right, right, right. Um,
1: But they did not go that route. In order to further enhance Morin's body being Reginald, they changed their clothes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
1: where that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She
0: she put Reginald's clothes on Morin's body so that it would be more taken as Reginald. Yeah. The whole deal is, like, the face is too badly fucked up for anyone to identify, right? Yeah. Yeah, this movie is really, like, as we said earlier, like, interesting because of the way it's using its tropes. Like, Monique coming to the castle, and there being, like, all these secrets about, like, that's your Jane Eyre stuff, right? Yeah. And that, to be fair, like, ties in with, you know, that's gothic romance, which ties in with gothic horror, which ties in with, right, like, everything here is still in the same family, you know? Um, the... Hey, I was secretly a detective the whole time. Now let's solve the whole movie at the end in the last five minutes and reveal all the mysteries. Thing is right out of like the Scooby Doo style American like old dark house movies of like the twenties and thirties,
1: and a little bit of Sherlock Holmes too. Yes, there's always that thing at the end where Holmes explains how things were happening.
0: Right, and the Wolf of the Malvenor brings to mind like the Hound of the Baskervilles and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, like, what's interesting about the narrative structure is that this is a movie that starts up being like, oh, yeah, there's a legend that the Malvinuers are werewolves. And then, like, you know, there's howls and there's people dying and all this stuff. And then when you find Reginald alive, it's like, oh, okay, we're going to get, like, the there's no real werewolf Scooby-Doo kind of thing. But then it's like, oh, no, 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 this isn't a werewolf movie, actually. This is a mad scientist movie, and it is a real horror movie it's just not a werewolf movie. Let me talk to you about how I've brought people back from the dead. And you're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) And then he dies and it turns out maybe he was a werewolf after all. Like, like it has the structure of a, like, Oh, there was nothing actually supernatural going on here except that there was maybe. Yeah. Like
1: it's like, maybe.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: And you're like, maybe what? Exactly. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty much, right?
1: (laughs) I do think that the acting was pretty good. Mm -hmm. It is spooky how much Monique in certain lights reminded me or looked like Elizabeth Russell. Yeah. I think it was the cheekbones. Oh,
0: absolutely. Uh, Madeline Solange, who plays Monique, uh, she's very captivating on screen. She's very charming. I think she makes a really good heroine for, like, the movie to follow, because she's really likable and stuff. But you're absolutely right. Like, the whole movie I was just thinking, like, oh, that's super weird how much she looks like a young Elizabeth Russell.
1: Yeah, it was eerie.
0: Pierre Renoir here is doing the, like, big-ish actor, shows up for, like, two scenes to ham it up and then get top billing. Yeah, because he was Reginald. Yeah, he's Reginald, and it's like, if this was a movie being made now, right... Uh, he would be like Michael Ironside, right? Where it's like, this isn't... Like, Pierre Renoir was a well-known actor, but he wasn't, like, top. Like, he wasn't the Tom Cruise of 1940s France, right? <laughs> like, it's like Iron Michael Ironside showing up, where you're like, oh, that's a real guy. They got a real guy for this. But then, like, you know, he's in one scene at the start to be like, hello, I am this scientist, then disappear for the whole movie, then come back for one scene at the end where he really gets to chew the scenery, and then that's it, and still get top billing. And it's just... It's fun to see that sort of weird, unique property of genre films in a European film from the 40s to be like, oh, that's a kind of a universal thing, I guess. Yeah. But I think the movie really belongs to Gabrielle Dorziat, who plays uh, Magda.
1: Yeah, I really liked her. I really liked Magda. Mm -hmm. Um, I know she's like covering up murders and stuff, but like, besides that, She's really cool. I mean, she's like... She's like the feminist aunt.
0: What she really is, is she's a queer-coded villain. Yes. Right? Like, she's the villain of the movie, so she becomes this, like, really butch woman who, like, wears pants and, like, coats and, like, has the air of, like, the lord of the manor and, like, talks about, like... How like she she loves this life, like she never wants to live anywhere else, but like on this land, and she she you know cuts down her own trees and she sows her own oats, and she she lives and roughs it and and rides a horse and and you know all this stuff, and uh you know that 's because she 's a malvinur, and the Malvinors are badasses who just live on their own land and don 't care yeah. what anybody thinks, and she all this does, stuff. like
1: one day her alibi is like i 've been out riding for six hours and i 'm like. <laughs> six hours
0: yeah she seems to just like you know she's got the like male kind of like oh I'm gonna do stuff that like sucks and is painful because that means I'm really alive or whatever kind of thing so we're being told that she's a villain by the fact that she is queer-coded lesbian and like many old-fashioned queer-coded villains That means that, like, from a 2020 perspective, she seems really cool and badass. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, um, Gabrielle Dorziat, who plays the part, is very, like, electric in the role. I would say she absolutely, like, commands the screen in the scenes that she's appearing.
1: I would agree. I did feel like the way that this movie was put together in terms of, um editing mm-hmm. um the way we would cut to a different scene or something like that was very unique it was very cool like there were times where like like for example when Megda lets monique and genevieve out of the basement mm-hmm. she we see her face in kind of like a portrait style and she is like what are you doing here mm-hmm. and then we don't get to hear the answer we cut to monique telling philippe and she says yeah i told Megda, whatever yeah um, and that was just, like, a unique way to kind of keep you engaged. It wasn't just, like, paint-by-numbers.
0: Yeah, and it, it keeps the tension and the pace going because we're moving on to the next thing already rather than, like, sticking around with characters and having characters explain to other characters things that the audience already knows. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there was a lot of really neat editing, cool cuts. There's, like, a lot of fun, like, old-fashioned, like, wipes in this movie. <laughs> but there's also a few, like, weird, awkward edits that make me wonder about like
1: are we missing scenes
0: right, either from like the movie being really old or from like censor scissors in like France at the time, you know what I yeah. mean yeah
1: it just feels so strange to me that like we see Philippe and Monique declaring their love for each other, but apparently off screen sometime between that love scene and the um interrogation of Magda... Um, Philippe explains to Monique that he's a cop and that's like why he's been so interested in things in, in what's been going on at the house. But there's no, like,
0: there's no reveal.
1: There's no reveal, but also it's like, so did you actually love her? Right. Like that, that's not resolved at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, Philippe telling Monique he's actually a police officer is something we're not supposed to see. And I think, you know, him and the doctor going off and doing this autopsy is something we're not supposed to see. Those are supposed to be things that are being kept from the audience so for, like, dramatic irony purposes. And then it's like when he starts going, snooping around the house on his own, we're like, oh, why is Philippe snooping around the house on his own, right? But it does feel like after they leave Reginald in the dungeon to burn to death, um, and between that and the interrogation scene with Magda, what we seem to be missing is Dr. Gerard arriving at the house, everyone going and finding Magda, like roping her up, not literally, and taking her to a room to sit her down and have this conversation, uh, which would then have to start with Philippe telling Magda, like, hey, I've been a secret police officer this whole time, um, which feels like that should be when the audience would learn as well. So it feels like there's, there's something at least missing there. Um, but there's also, like, a few other parts where when the film cuts, the, like, soundtrack jumps awkwardly. And we know that this movie doesn't have a library soundtrack. It has a, a real score. So, like, those also to me felt like, oh, something got cut here. And whether that was a censorship cut or whether that was just like a, oh, no, this movie has to be 99 minutes or less. And it came in at 115, So, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I feel like... Like, I I think this movie was really well done, really well produced. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography and shadows were really good. It was well directed. Yeah. But I kind of feel like I needed more sustained creepiness. Yeah. When there were the dark and stormy nights, like, beautiful, absolutely perfect. But then when we cut to Monique and Philippe talking about the mystery that's going on or, like, the weird things she's been experiencing, she seems so detached from it. And even the score changes to be a little more light um, to signify, like, hey, they're lovebirds. But it it feels The tension weird.
0: drops out is what happens, right? Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because, you, you know, bringing up the scene where they declare their love for one another, the thing that I thought watching that scene was that, like, the movie did a much better job of believably portraying the two of them falling in love than, like, most American movies of this type do with their leading couple. Yeah. Where, like, it's just, well, I'm a man. Like, and you're, and you're a, a
1: woman. Yeah. So let's bone.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just, exactly. <laughs> Whereas, like, this movie shows us their romance and shows them getting to know each other and has all these romantic scenes between them where they have all this chemistry and this wit going back and forth. But, like, the problem is by spending the time to realistically build up their relationship... It means the movie, like, is cutting to, like, full-on just, like, a French romance movie for, like, half the film. Like, it's it's this other thing for these periods. And I'm not sure if that's just because, like, that's what is expected in French cinema. Or if it, that's, like, some kind of, like, well, we're trying to play to all the audiences.
1: I feel like it's definitely trying to play to all the audiences. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder how much of it is them... Them is in the makers of the film seeing the list of universal tropes we have to meet mm-hmm. and not so much just like checking them off, kind of whatever, but being like, oh, okay, so we need to do a spooky scene. Cool. Here's a spooky scene. Yeah. Oh, there's a romantic subplot. Uh, here's a romantic subplot. And like the, like, really doing that really See... well, but forgetting how it connects to the spooky.
0: I don't think romantic subplot was on their list of tropes to hit. Like, I think that's the part that feels like a French movie. Okay. Like that feels like them doing what they're used to and what they're like comfortable with because it's just so much more well handled than American romance plots are. And even the like mushy, like maybe it's just because they're speaking French, but like the corny (laughs) ass mushy uh, romantic dialogue sounds like way more sincere I think what's happening is that's what they're used to doing and then they're inserting the spooky scene every so often because they know they have to. Sure. Right?
1: Um, I think the romantic dialogue is, yes, because they're speaking French, but there's also a feeling of, like, sincerity because of the way that they flirt and have chemistry between each other.
0: Yeah. And also I think it helps that, like, that they get to, like, meet and get to know each other better And, like, fall in love all through the course of the movie. Because, like, in a lot of the American versions of these stories, the couple tends to enter the movie, like, already fiancés. Right? Like, already engaged. So that it's just like, oh, they're together. And it's just like, we don't have to justify their relationship. It's already here. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know if this movie really ends up succeeding at emulating its source material. Like, I don't think this movie really succeeds at like beating Hollywood at, at its own game for this kind of movie. But I do think that they tried really hard and I think they get a lot of the pieces, right? Like, I think there's a lot of like, Oh, okay. That's what they think a spooky thunderstorm scene is. Well, we'll do ours. And like, it is really good. I think where the movie does fall apart is as you're saying in like connecting those moments together in like a through line. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like they kind of followed a recipe without knowing what the, like, base flavor
0: is supposed to taste like. It's it's Jack Skellington doing Christmas, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's, okay, I yeah. know that it needs all these things, right? So it's interesting that the thing that works the best is the believability of, oh, yeah, the villagers in this place, like, don't go to this place castle and never talk to this family and don't let them get buried in the cemetery for a hundred years or more because of this like weird folk legend like that part feels way more believable than it's ever felt because that's being reappropriated back
1: yeah everything did feel very believable from the villagers to as we've said the romance to even magda Mm mm-hmm yeah, yeah like, like it all felt very believable.
0: Magda feels like she's really that kind of person, right? And I don't know if like that performance or like the way that Legosi is better at being Dracula than say like Lon Chaney Jr. or, you know, those kind of things just come from like being in a country that does or being from a country that does have nobility. So it's like, oh I know what those people are like. Right, yeah. rather than I'm I'm kind of pretending. Um because like certainly like America had wealthy millionaires who you could argue were like America's nobility, but the numbers and the percentages will shock you how way less rich Americans uh like the American rich class was in the forties compared to now. Like, yeah, the the millionaires of today are definitely like fucking emperors of the world or whatever, but not so much really in the 1940s. It wasn't as, like, directly comparable, I think.
1: Drastic.
0: Drastic, yeah, that's that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, I'm Wealth just... Wealth inequality. Yeah, you know, millionaires of the 40s were, like, a hundred times richer than the average person, and now the wealthy are, like, a billion times richer than the average person.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It is... Our world
1: is so fucked, Ben. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to the movie you were saying.
0: So, yeah, I think this is a really fun watch. I think it's really enjoyable, um, but I don't think I don't think it's like a classic or even maybe effective at what it's doing, but I definitely enjoyed it. How do you
1: feel about this being considered horror?
0: Oh, I definitely think it's horror. It's definitely going for it all the way. It's just, like, stumbling and not quite doing it right, but I think it's still definitely a horror movie. Okay. Once, I feel like... <laughs> One of the, like, you know, we we talk in the first episode about, like, I know it when I see it, right? And I feel like the thing that I see that lets me know is if there's a bunch of beakers and flasks in a room in, like, a castle. Like, that's cool. It's a horror movie. Like, otherwise, like, beakers and flasks and shit belong in, like, laboratories. If they're surrounded by, like, stone castle walls, it's a horror movie. Sure,
1: the castle does explode. It is a model of the castle. I <laughs> yes. don't actually explode the full castle. Yeah. Um, cool. So let's move on to
0: ranking. Absolutely. So when I was thinking about ranking this movie, the first place I looked was to find Le Maine du Diable.
1: Oh, that's what I did too.
0: Yeah. Well, it's just like another French horror movie from exactly the same time period. So it feels like a good place to start for like a basis of comparison.
1: Yeah. So that is at 68 currently.
0: So I immediately felt this was better than Lemain Maine de Diabla. I think it's more successful as a horror movie. I think Lemain Maine de Diabla's problem is that Maurice Tenure's pretensions kind of get in the way of him.
1: It just feels long and a little rambly. Yeah. Whereas, um, Lelou de Melvenire is
0: focused, like we're at this castle. Yeah, absolutely. Like... You know, we talked about this movie kind of trying to do horror without understanding it. La Maine de Diablo is, is way more that, right? Like, it has the, like, I'm an art director and I'm going to do the horror movie kind of problem. So I started looking up from there and my eyes came to rest on The Ghoul at number 57. Which, because it also is, like, centered around, like, one house, you know, it's an old dark house movie, felt comparable and right above that is Beast with Five Fingers, which is also super comparable as, like, a bunch of people in a big old house, and even, like, the, oh, the dead guy is playing organ music yeah. when nobody's watching. What is
1: with that? I mean, I guess organs are spooky. It all goes back to the Phantom, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: No, you're totally right. Um, so I thought maybe Beast with Five Fingers or The Ghoul was better than this, even though, like... Beast with Five Fingers also has that, like, we're a horror movie, but not. um, Except that, like, Lelou de does the opposite. It's like, we're not really a horror movie, or are we? Whereas, like, Beast with Five Fingers is like, this is definitely a horror movie. J.K., it's not. Totes J.K. would be silly if, though, but Totes J.K.
1: Yeah, Uh, the ending really, ugh, really gets me. I
0: wanted to give some idea that maybe those could be considered better so i made my floor number 58 right below the ghoul working my way up to find a ceiling uh the next place that my eyes kind of settled was fall of the house of usher the chute de la maison usher at number 47 because french creepy old dark house like decrepit ancient family stuff right
1: and there is a curse on the family
0: exactly and I was thinking, like, you know, I think that Epstein movie is better than this. But then, like, just through the way that peripheral vision works, my eye saw that stuff like House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman are above that. And I was like, hmm, hmm, I think this is better than those maybe, though. <laughs> uh, but I do think The Spiritualist, a.k.a. The Amazing Mr. X, is a better horror movie than this. Uh absolutely. So my ceiling is the Amazing Mr. X putting this at number 43. So that's my range, 43 to 58.
1: Within your range, I'm feeling more towards your bottom. Mm. Um, mainly because the beast with five fingers, I think, is better produced. Yeah. Than yeah. this.
0: Yeah, one. I mean the, the hand effects. Peter yeah,
1: Laurie. That that in itself. <laughs> yes, Peter Lorre Um, and all of the, as much as I was disappointed that it was all in his head and as also as much as I'm disappointed with the ending being like, no, JK, JK for real, JK times 10. Yeah. Kind of ending everything up to that point felt sincere.
0: Well, yeah. Like we talk about in that episode, it's a sandwich, right? So there's a sustained middle section where it's a horror movie whereas as we've pointed out like Lelou de Malveneur is basically intercutting horror movie and romance movie.
1: Mm-hmm. So my feeling is below beast with five fingers but above the ghoul.
0: The problem I end up having with that is then I see like Strangler of the Swamp and I'm like is this better than Strangler of the Swamp though? Like is this better than Captive Wild Woman? Valley of the Zombies? Like Valley of the Zombies is ranked really high purely on its level, like... What even is Valley of the Zombies? Valley of the Zombies is the movie that doesn't have a valley or zombies because it's actually like Batman Dracula flying around like an urban city, like stealing blood from people.
1: Right. That movie's dope, though. Yes. <laughs> um... Um. Well, I mean, like, look at... Like, we have Orlok's Hand, mm-hmm. Dr. Renault's Secret, White Zombie, like, all of these movies in here, even Captive Wild Woman have that weird, like, sandwich intercutting thing. So I think we are looking in the right range.
0: Yeah, I think below House of Usher and Phantom of the Convent, for sure. Um, I'm just not sure about these movies kind of in the middle here, because, yeah, this is kind of the area for, like, it's horror, but... (laughs) But asterisk. Yeah. Uh,
1: Okay, I'm cool with that. I feel like below... Fantasma del Convento at 48, but above Valley of the Zombies at 49, makes sense.
0: Okay, you're cool with that? Yeah. Alright, so entering the list at number 49, then, is Le Lou de Malveneur from 1943, directed by Guillaume Radeau.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, like all of the werewolf films. Um the other films that we've mentioned in the ranking, and even Le main de diable. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can reach us through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com
0: or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. And you can use all of those avenues to suggest movies that maybe we missed, just like this movie was suggested to us.
1: Yeah, thank you, anonymous person. Um, I really did enjoy watching this.
0: Yeah, this was really good. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are sold using (laughs) our RSS feed subscription. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on one of those services. Those help algorithms push the show to other people. Or you can do that legwork yourself and push the show to other people over social media and let people know far and wide on Twitter. Uh, every time you see someone say, "Hey, I need some new podcasts to listen to because I got nothing to do because I'm trapped at home because coronavirus," you tell them about Scream Scene Podcast. And if you're going to tell them
1: face to face,
0: remember to keep that six foot distance between you. Yeah, absolutely. Two meters, no more. Well, you can do more, but no less. <laughs> A really great way for you to support us if you are enjoying the show is to head over to patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. Doing so gets you thanked on the show, but joining the higher levels, $5 and $10, gets you special bonus content that uh, appears on the Patreon feed. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast.
1: Okay, Ben, I feel... I think that wraps up the 40s for yeah. us. Where are we going to next?
0: Well, we are jumping to... Oh, ni- when are we going to next? Fair. The where is Antarctica. The when is 1951. The movie is The Thing. Oh my god! From Another World.
1: Yes, yes. That John Carpenter's The Thing is remaking, kind of.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, it's the, the title when you see, like, the credits, the posters, everything, really needs to be said as the thing from another world. Because it's really clear that the from other world part was just, like, added later.
1: They saw that um, sci-fi was catching on. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, we're yeah. headed into... Let's try to get this this into that kind of genre boom. You know how we've been having a lot of trouble over the 1940s being like, is this horror, is this mystery, is this thriller, is it film noir? Yeah, that's about to become ten full years of is this horror or is this sci-fi? But I'm really excited to watch uh, The Thing from Another World with all of you next week. We will see
1: you then, creatures of the night. Bye! Bye!